0: Good evening. My name is Andy Lyman, alcoholic. And through the God of my understanding and the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, I have not had to have a drink since July 9th, 1986. Yes. And, uh... yes. and before I start, I just want to say thank you very much to, to both Beth and Chuck for this invitation. Uh, it is very much a privilege to be here. We learned a little bit about Beth through this. She is a risk taker. <laughs> and that's uh... You know, I I love this program. I love what I learned from this program, and I love how my life continues to grow. I've been one of the people who has learned that uh, putting down alcohol was just very much a bare beginning. My life has changed so dramatically, it's beyond my wildest expectations. As I was leaving Huntsville this morning uh, and we were climbing out, it was a little bit cloudy, but there were gaps in those clouds, and I was looking down and we flew over a fairly large-sized plant, and it was Saturday. And the parking lot was empty except for two cars pulled up close to the building and i just kind of looked and there's the results of what begins to happen here several years ago one of those cars would have been mine all the fear all the feelings of inadequacy all the things that were going on in my life all the things that alcohol covered up so well drove me even into my early part of sobriety that i had to just keep running and keep keep pushing harder and harder to try and cover up all the things that I thought were wrong. And they really never were there. Now, I'd I'd like to really summarize my whole story very quickly. It's not hard to do. I can tell you simply that I grew up with alcoholism, I married an alcoholic, I am an alcoholic, and I produced a few of them. uh, So, it's been a pretty broad spread and I've gotten to see a great deal of it as I've come along. I look back to where my drinking started, it it was right around 12 or 13. It was in that range, and I used to think I started real early. And I've been in these rooms long enough now to understand that for people like like us, I was probably just average, and that was about where it was. It was always around the house. I never remember not seeing alcohol at at any family function or continuously every day in the house. My father died from this disease. Uh, Most of his family did. My mother, it skipped her, but if we went back to her parents and all the other people there, it was just rampant all the way through the whole family. So I guess it wasn't a surprise. My two brothers that I have, though, somehow it missed them. So I don't understand how this disease comes into certain people and not others. All I know is that uh, I had it, and I have it today, and that I have to be very careful as to what I do. You know, that first drink, I had, there was always a beer or a wine or something to taste when I was a kid and I never liked it but I do remember the first time it is just clearly in my mind I can remember very very well because I was in a small town I grew up on a chicken farm in Connecticut it was a very small town and so there wasn't a whole lot of opportunity to get to booths. everybody knew what was going on in the town money was in short supply but there was a few of us that got together that evening and, and we had gotten a six pack of beer and we'd had gotten a, a bottle of rye whiskey, a quart of that. And it was one of the top brands. I don't know, Three Feathers or Four Roses, one of the, one of the top shelf brands that we got into. That, uh, but we sat in the woods, just in the middle of nowhere, and started to drink that. And then I found out about the effect of alcohol. I still didn't care for the taste all that much, but what it did for me that evening, every problem I had in my life, everything that was there that I didn't like, it was all gone. Life was just wonderful. From that day on, every time I could get to alcohol, I drank it as often and as much as I could. And that was the way my life ran for a lot of years. But I said, it wasn't readily available. Because, again, the funding wasn't good. I told you my father was an alcoholic, and uh, he had had a good job at one time. And uh, typical of our behavior, nobody appreciated him, nobody understood him. So he finally quit that job so that he could go out and run his own business and show them how it should be done. That business was the chicken farm we had. And he did most of his negotiating for new chickens and so forth in the, the one local bar we had in town. And we used to get these diseased chickens that show up every once in a while, wipe out every bit of the stock we had on the place. So I learned early on what bankruptcy was also as we were coming along. So, again, it was difficult to get to the alcohol. But I did every chance I had. I rattled on through school that way. I discovered in high school a thing called beach parties where we used to just pull up a rowboat on the beach and ice it down and fill it with beer. Loved those beach parties. I'd spend long evenings there. But I got through without getting into any serious trouble. I mean, Certain things went on. I can remember my high school graduation, I ended up extremely drunk that evening. I just thought that was part of the ceremony of graduating. I didn't understand how anyone would graduate and not drink, the two of them had to go together. And I got off into just two years of school right after that. I had this thing in my head at that time, I wanted to go fly, and that was all I had a thing to go do. And At that time, the Air Force required two years of college to be able to get into the pilot training program. So I went and got the two years and went off and started trying to do that. I guess some of the patterns were starting to show up very well at that stage, because I remember, I was 17 when I left to go. to start school like that. I'd gotten out a little bit early, but I was very, very careful to go register for the draft before I left home. I played this little head game of uh, I wanted to be patriotic. I didn't want to be caught away from home and not be able to register for the draft right on time. But I also knew that I was going to school in a state where the drinking age was 18, and all you needed to get a drink was a draft card. And I wasn't walking into that state without a draft card in my pocket. And it's... uh, so those the patterns were well set pretty early for me, and I made it through there fairly easy. Uh, somehow or another I got through my my drinking would go in spurts all through that time. And even as I got into the Air Force I and mean, then I made it part way through pilot training and and they caught me on a minor physical deficiency and I couldn't understand what all that was and I do today, the Korean War was winding down and they were cutting back the program. That was the way they chose to do it. Real bitter justifies a lot of drinking when you, when you get an excuse like that, and I used it very, very well. Uh, I hooked up with some great friends at that time also, and, and I even looked back at that as to what were the important things and what were the, the things that I really paid attention to at that point. There were three of us that used to run together. One of them had one of the most wonderful cars I've ever seen. It was an old 1946 Dodge, and I don't know how many of you remember those, but they're just great big boats. But what made that a wonderful car, we were stationed in San Antonio at the time and used to wander out into West Texas. And uh, always in the trunk of that car was a folding table, a folding umbrella, a couple of folding chairs, a bottle of gin, a bottle of vermouth, and a jar of olives. It was always there. And we would end up on the side of the road out in West Texas roads just all by ourselves sipping martinis, hot from sitting in the trunk. But nobody seemed to care, you know, because the ice didn't carry very well. And that pattern went on as as we went through. And I just, somehow or another, I would always hook up with the people that drank the way I drank. And I don't know how that pattern continued, but we would just hook up. I never missed hooking up with those kind of people. And I did get out of the service pretty quick. I mean, i look back at that. There's a God of my understanding working in my life at that time. I didn't know it. I didn't see what was going on. I was talking to a gentleman before we got up here. My entire class went to sack. Those poor guys with two years of school were ended up five years later married with a couple of kids as a captain on flight status, and they couldn't get out. They couldn't afford to get out. I beat it out of there pretty quick and said, what do I go do? And I went back to school. And I ended up going to a school, and then it was in St. Louis at that time. It was known for its aeronautical engineering. That's what I wanted to go do. And I don't know if there was other things working in my life then too. I met my roommate to be, I walked in, I got discharged on a, on a uh, Thursday and I was started school on a Monday. I just drove from Saint, from San Antonio up to St. Louis, went right at it. But on Saturday I got there and met my roommate who had just gotten out of the Navy. And of course we were in downtown East St. Louis checking all the bars that evening and i had run into another man who loved to drink exactly the way i liked to drink and we got along very very well that man was probably to become the best friend i had in my life and i just it was just great the strange thing that happened with him is he was getting concerned about his drinking at that time and uh, i couldn't understand why he was concerned but he was and he was he went seeking help and he found the kind of help that will kill people like you and i It was all well-meaning he approached one of the priests on the campus of that school and asked him explained to him that he was concerned about his drinking and the advice he got was if you're really that concerned just don't take the second one and that was what he was told would probably be great advice for 90 percent of the people out there but not for us i know that evening i sat with him in our favorite bar right off the campus and we each drank a beer and he looked at the bartender and he said, Ronnie, put two more up in front of me. And he looked at him and he said, which one is my second one? The bartender said, that one. He handed it to me, went on to his third, and the both of us sat there. And you know, it's, uh, you know, and I thought he was absolutely brilliant when he did that. You know, and uh, but I also need to tell you that that man never saw his 30th birthday. This, this disease killed him before that time he coughed himself to death in the middle of his living room floor with his pregnant wife holding him and it uh as I say I think had nothing to do with me i couldn't see any relationship between what happened to him and what was going on in my life and i just continued on on my merry way got out of school went to work and getting to work was a wonderful thought in my mind because now i could go afford to drink the way i wanted to drink and it uh and i, and I also saw one of these crazy patterns that comes up in our lives at that stage this same friend was a very good solid catholic young man and lent came along not too long after we were out and he challenged me to stop drinking for lent and i said sure i can do that and none of this sissy stuff of drinking on sundays we're going straight through the whole six weeks which we did but i also remember the saturday night as easter came because I was very, very thirsty. So I went down and bought lots and lots of beer and brought it back to the apartment we were in and then proceeded to empty all the food out of my refrigerator so I could stash all the beer in there, planted myself in a chair, folded my arms in front of the clock and watched for midnight because I was loose again. And it's, uh, I don't think normal drinkers do that sort of thing. <laughs> you know, but, uh, but I did. And I also used that excuse for many years. I couldn't be an alcoholic. See, I had given up at that time and lasted all that time. I also started dating a young lady at that time, and uh, she drank like I drank also. Actually, she drank a little more than I drank. It was was amazing. But it made us get along very, very well. I can remember taking her to her, her senior prom. Well, I took her to dinner before her senior prom. We never quite made it to the senior prom because she was in the ladies' room, and she was quite ill and I learned one of the better things that uh, when you need to talk to people when you're getting sick from this stuff, it had nothing to do with how much she drank. It was bad scallops that we had that evening. And I ran into a lot of bad scallops along the way as we went. But she and I did go on and get married and we had four kids in four years. I mean, it was was pretty wild. And the job shifted quite a bit and I ended up on the West Coast. And then I, all I can tell you is that I, I grew up in New England. I've lived in Pennsylvania, I've lived in Texas and California and Maryland and Florida, but I don't think I did anything about geographic cures, at least none that I recognized. But it just went on and on that way, and I kept shifting. And I always thought because I was going off to learn something new or to do something different, and I never realized how hard I was running from the things that were going on in my life. By that time, you know, and suddenly I I shifted in, I got out to... uh, i played around aircraft, i played around helicopters for years, I had an opportunity to end up at Edwards Air Force Base, which is where all the toys are, and I got to work in engineering out there for, for several years, and I had a great time, but if you want to get around a crowd that really drinks, get around that bunch, and uh, I got along very, very well with them. And I could use the excuses, too, about the pressure, because I flew quite a bit while we were out there, and the pressure of flight test and all the all the excuses that I could use to justify my drinking. I used to like to talk about earning my drinks, and I mean what a bunch of nonsense that is, but I used it very, very well. And finally, the kids were starting to grow a little bit. travel was very expensive out there, decided that needed to move on, and I ended up going to work for a helicopter manufacturer in Connecticut and the fourth child was born there. And about five months after that fourth child was born, uh, my wife's first suicide attempt came. And we were to go through four of those suicide attempts before things finally ended. And uh, and it was just, it got crazy. It just got crazier and crazier. I had four diagnoses of schizophrenia on her. We'd been through several psychiatrists. We went I then personally started to understand going bankrupt because we were going broke with all the private psychiatrists, the private hospitals. We finally hit the wall, and we had to move her out of the last private hospital she was in and into a state mental facility. And all I'll say to anyone who gets afraid of the state facilities, I was terrified of them. So was she because of all the horror stories that float around about them. But it was a young lady who worked in that state facility who finally looked her eyeball to eyeball one day and asked that very simple question of how much do you drink? And suddenly, you know, I look back today and I will tell people that I understand today that her schizophrenia cost about $8 a quart at that time because she was down to Majorska and all the cheap, cheap vodkas at that point. Perhaps there's some mental illness there too, but the alcohol was so involved that it, uh, and that's where it really was and I began to see where that pattern went on. We probably could have survived some of that, you know, and, then, and I actually ended up doing some Al-Anon at that stage because I didn't have that much trouble with her drink. The only time I really had a sorry, serious problem with her drinking at that point was when she got into my share. And then there was, there was a problem at that point. But I did not understand at all what was going on or what was happening. And we probably could have survived a lot of it, except the last trip she made into that, she started using the the state mental facility as as a place to have a break, to get away from the pressures, to go have a rest. And the last time she came out of there, she just quietly announced to me that uh, she didn't need a husband, she didn't need children, and that she was changing her lifestyle, and she'd hooked up with a woman that she had met in that state mental facility, and and they were leaving together. And that caught me a little flat-footed. And I suddenly had four kids to raise. Those two have been together now longer than we were married. And uh, and the thing that I've learned, one of the marvelous things that I've learned in this program when I finally got here, is there was to be no peace in my life until I accepted her exactly as she is and that she has every right to be who and what she is. And it's perfectly okay. Once I could bring myself to that, it wasn't a problem anymore. But life went on and, and my kids were growing up and I had three boys and a girl. And I can tell you that the three boys all have this disease. My daughter has every one of the isms. The alcohol doesn't work for her. Sometimes I wish she would drink. You know, I'd know what to do for her, but I certainly don't know what to do for her the way things are. But they were starting to grow up. My oldest son had left and gone to school, had gone off to college. My second son uh, had decided that I was impossible to deal with, and he'd packed up and left. And he'd moved out with an aunt in uh, Albuquerque. She had, uh, she had nine children, and she took him in when he asked. She's an incredible person. And he lasted about six months with her and figured out she was just as unreasonable as I was. You know. And he, went, he is still out there. He's the one that's still practicing better living through chemistry for me. Why he's still alive is beyond my comprehension. I don't understand it, but he is. And he has seen the worst of it as he's gone through. Each one of my boys was seeing some rough stuff. But another change came in in my work at that time. We opened up a development flight center down in West Palm Beach. I was working with a research aircraft at that time. I was having a grand time. And I ended up taking that thing down to South Florida, which I thought was gonna be for six months, which turned out to be for 10 years. And, uh, And I was doing reasonably well with my job. Even with all the stuff that was going on, I don't know how that managed to to work. But, you know, I've, I've listened to people in this program tell me today that if there's enough going on in your life, if there's enough that you're really tangling with, that you can hold off this disease taking you for a while. And I believe that was the case for me. I could hold it off for a while, but in the end, I'll guarantee you, alcoholism wins. And that was the way the pattern started to develop for me. As I left to go down to Florida, the the oldest two were gone. My last son and my daughter were still at home. I went down, rented a condo for a while, ended up buying a house. Things were quite marvelous in Florida. I learned some things down there that, that made life much, much better. first one was that it was legal to drink while driving in the state of Florida. It was not legal to drive drunk, but having a drink while you were driving down the road was not a problem. I know that I began to judge the quality of automobiles by how well I could set my drink on the steering wheel and it not spill while I was going down down the highway. We had a little facility, I mean we had built the development flight center out in the middle of a swamp because we wanted no more of the problems of people moving in next door and then complaining about what you do. And The only thing out there was another gas station. If you turned left, you went to the gas station. If you turned right, you went into town. The gas station was affectionately known as the high-test lounge because they sold more beer than they sold gasoline. It it was just a pattern. Somehow or another, I started acquiring cars that would not make right-hand turns coming out of that place. I would end up there, and and the pattern really started to go at that time. I would stop and have one or two, and then I'd stop and have one and two and get two for the ride home and then stop again on the ride home. Things just really started to take off on me at that point. And I had no concept of what was going on. I know somewheres in that time my morning drinking began. I, you know, sometimes this analytic mind gets me in a, in a great deal of trouble. I will analyze everything to death. And if you can convince me that this is a good way to do something, I know my morning drinking started on a golf course in South Florida. It was summertime, and I didn't get a tea time later than 7 in the morning in the summer down there. You'd get beat to death by the sun after that. And I was standing on that tea at 7 o'clock in the morning with a driver in my hand, and it wouldn't stop shaking because it had been a long night on Friday night. And a friend of mine that was with me looked at me, and he said, Your hands are shaking. And I said, Yeah. He said, Do you know what your problem is? If you drank too much coffee, you've got caffeine nerves. Here, try this cold beer to level them right out, and it worked like a charm. You know, I, had, I took care of a lot of caffeine nerves for a long time after that. And it, uh, but that was the way my pattern was going, and it was it was starting to go fairly fast. I was also beginning to practice my primary skill. My ex had been gone quite a bit at that time. The kids were getting bigger. My third one ended up leaving home right about that time. He was in deep trouble. If you listen to his story today, he'll tell you very quickly that if you can snort it, shoot it, swallow it, smoke it, he did it. And I was terrified that young man was going to—he was going to die at that point. And uh, he came in, he came up to me, and he just sat all of a sudden walked into me one day and said, "You know, he's—I can't live like this anymore." He said, uh, we were on the east coast of Florida." He says, "I found a rehab on the west coast. Can you help me?" And I said, "Get my checkbook." And he left went into that rehab that was the son who beat me into this program by five years and I didn't understand what was going on five years later when I got sober he stopped in to see me one day because when he came out of that rehab the one thing place he could not come was back home because my drinking was spiraling out of control he couldn't come near me I didn't understand it but I didn't question it either But five years later, when I was a little ways into the program, he showed up one day, and I came to find out he had absolutely no plan of going into that rehab. A friend of his who had gone with him, he he had told me he was going with him because he was worried about it. The friend had been arrested. The judge had told him, rehab or jail, take your pick. And so he came to my son and said, go hit your father for the money. He said, we'll go over, check in for a couple of days, and then we'll split, and we'll have your father's money to go party on. And, uh, and that's the way he went in. The only thing happened was he heard something in that rehab. The other kids split right on time. And he's uh, been sober ever since. And I just, uh, my first introduction to learning that I have absolutely no idea how the grace of this program is going to strike, I never question it any further. But I was still getting in deeper and deeper trouble. And I'd finished up with a research program I had I ended up as chief of flight test programs for that company down there. And then a funny thing happened, I I was still getting in deeper and deeper trouble and I was also starting to get terrified at that point. I was managing to keep things just halfway balanced, but I knew everything was very close to gone, that I was gonna lose it all very quickly because I just couldn't stop doing what I was doing. And an opportunity came, there was another research program that had gotten in trouble back in Connecticut and I was asked to come up and straighten that out. And that was another one of those. I was supposed to go up for three months. It lasted three years. But initially, I didn't split the uh, completely from the other job. I had both jobs going for a while. And I shuttled back and forth. It's a marvelous way to hide your drinking. It is absolutely marvelous, because if I was traveling, I could show up late for work, and no one questioned. And I got away with a whole lot of things and hung on for a little while longer. But I was doing a dance that was just about to collapse. Another thing had happened that I just didn't understand of what was going on, of God working in my life again. Back in Connecticut, I was back in close contact with a cousin. And always, she had always been quite close. And she was beginning to challenge my drinking very directly. She would get right in my face. And she'd start challenging that until she had me about to blow up and then she'd back off. But every time she'd do that, she was very skilled at it. And uh, every time she'd do that, she'd make sure that I knew she had a name and a phone number if I ever needed them. And again, I was back also, which I didn't really touch on some of this, I was back to practicing my primary skill all through this time. My primary skill is getting into sick relationships. I am an absolute pro at doing that. And I had gotten to one into South Florida and I was trying to run from that mess. And So when this opportunity ended up putting me back into Connecticut for a while, It was just great. Then I ended up dating another lady up there, and I was getting much closer to the end of my drinking than I even began to realize, shuttling back and forth. I shouldn't end up saying I really ended up dating her. I went out with her twice, and after I went out with her the second time, she was in the hospital for a checkup. When she came out from the checkup, she'd been through a quadruple bypass. And she was sitting sitting there talking to me as she got home, and she was... uh, complaining that her whole family was about to descend on her. They're all supposedly coming to visit to see how she was doing. And she just looked at me and she said, uh, they're just going to come in and expect me to cook and do all the other things. And she just had her chest ripped open. And I just, I got into one of my modes that said, not to worry. I'll take care of it for you. And I did. I walked into her place and I was approaching my last drink because my last drunk was far from my worst but it was absolutely my most embarrassing. I did go in there and cook that meal for her that evening and take care of things for her. And I absolutely would not get drunk in that kind of situation. Would not do it. Would not allow myself to do that. So I just took a six-pack with me because I could sit there and drink a six-pack, and that didn't count at that stage in my drinking. However, her brother showed up with a case, and someone had a bottle of scotch. And I know that sometime during the evening, the six-pack was gone, the the case was gone, and there was a big hole in that bottle of scotch. And as I looked around, no one else was drinking. And somehow or another, there was to be no blackout for me that evening. There had been a lot of them prior to that, but there was to be none that evening. And as I watched that going down and suddenly realized I just had to get out of there, I was on my feet, but I didn't know how. It was just a mess. I remember looking over my shoulder at her. She was counting empties. And I really knew I had to get out. And I got out of that house that night and into the car to get back to the little condo that I had up there at that point. Doing the usual trick that most of us do, getting one hand over one eye to get the white lines down to the right number so I could get on home. And I did. And that was the one, the thing that finally hit me was that my absolute refusal to get drunk. And there I was and I did pick up the phone the next day and I did call my cousin and I asked her for that name and phone number and she gave them to me very, very quickly and then other things started to happen because I called him and he was out of town and so I had a reprieve as far as I was concerned I went to what I call maintenance drinking I was just trying to keep myself just kind of level because I'd reached a point in my life to where I could not get into the evening of a day without putting alcohol in my body I just could not function without doing that and several things started to happen. A few days passed, and he was due back in town. And I can remember that evening getting ready to call him. I did a couple things. One, I was sitting on my couch the coffee table, and I had a row of drinks in front of me. And I was working my way down through those. And what I was trying to do was I knew I was going to have to stop drinking, and I was trying to figure out for how long. And I was actually sitting there trying to analyze that. And then I finally picked up the phone and called him. And the attitude was coming back. You know how we get, that we can get beat down and we're ready to give up, and it doesn't take long before that attitude comes roaring right back. I picked up that phone, dialed his number, and my head was sitting there saying, son of a bitch better be there. If he's not, I'm not going. They had their chance. And, and, you know, that was the pattern. And he answered the phone. And he did one of those other things that that just took care of me as I walked through. He asked me, could I get away from work to get to a noon meeting? As I said, I could not get to the evening without drinking. And he got me to a noon meeting the next day. I still don't remember a great deal of that meeting. I don't know a whole lot of what went on. I know I was kind of panicked when I came out of it, and I knew I had to get to another one that night, which I did. He made sure I had a list. I didn't see that man again for another year, but he got me pointed to the right places. And I don't know how this even began to work, but I know it was just a big scramble for a long time. I was absolutely running. My job was driving me nuts at the stage also, and I was shifting around. I was working very, very long hours, and somehow managing to do that. That actually helped keep me sober for a while. And I would just run. And I ended up going to meetings all over the state as I would shift from one place to another something had clicked that I had to go do this and pretty soon a week had passed and I hadn't picked up a drink and I was absolutely dumbfounded that I had not done that. There finally came one night of driving back from having been in a wind tunnel all day that uh, that I got a little desperate and I finally opened up my mouth and asked God to help me. I didn't get back into my condo until about midnight that evening but all I can re- I can remember that night very, very clearly of walking in closing the door leaning up against it and just that big exhale coming because I knew I was going to be okay something had shifted I don't know what but something had changed and I was still running back and forth between Connecticut and between Florida and I picked up another group in Florida and then a whole another locked into a good home group in Connecticut just absolutely ran into the right people at the right time this just continued to happen for me all the way through I sat there and then, finally ended up asking a big burly Irishman to sponsor me, and uh, and he was not sober that long and panicked. No one had asked him to sponsor them yet, and he went running to ask his sponsor if he could do it, and he was quickly told he's going to get his head busted if he didn't, you know, because we, that particular group was filled with Johns, and so they all had nicknames. There was Angry John and One Shot John, and they just went right down the whole list, I mean, and his sponsor was Angry John. first thing you learned is you didn't go to the hockey game with angry john because it came out there he also somehow or another he decided that i could hear him better if he held me in a headlock while he talked to me (laughs) when i got squirrely he's the one who usually grabbed me and there's a whole lot of things that would go on up there and one of the things that i just loved in that part of the country when i started getting squirrely the next thing i heard alongside me was get in the car and get in the car with him meant I was on my way to a mission in downtown Bridgeport. And boy, that place will straighten you out in a hurry. It, it'll, uh, I'll get focused. And that man, as much as he was named Angry John and the things that would go on with him, I learned so much about, from him about life and everything else. We sat there one night in that meeting, in that mission, and a woman came in from outside literally in rags, rags for shoes, And she sat on the outside of that meeting, and as soon as the basket came around, she stole the collection, and she was gone. And uh, as we came out, we were standing outside, and John spotted her in the alley. And I watched him start chasing her. He went tearing after her. She started to run, but he caught her. And the first thing he did was to grab her, hug her, and then hold her out and look at her and said, Honey, you got enough out of the kitty tonight. Don't buy any of the cheap stuff. Go get the good stuff. Right? And I watched what was done. She was just letting know that she was loved the way she was. And a seed was planted. You know, and she knew where to come. And I watched her come back in. And it, uh, you're just, and, and the pattern just kept going for me like that. The right people at the right time. I have to tell you that as I got into the first step and showed up in these rooms, and uh, that I did very, very well with the first half of the first step, that I was powerless over alcohol. I had a real bad time with the second half. I would look at you and say, I raised these kids by myself, I did these things by myself, I kept the job going by myself, don't you tell me that my life was unmanageable. And it took me a long time to see that I had just been running as hard as I knew how to run, and that I was about as unmanageable as I could get. And I had just as bad a time with the second step, because I'd look there and tell you that I'd been into these state mental institutions, I knew what insanity was. It's not this. And then finally that comment came in a meeting one night of doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. And that was so clear for me at that point. That's right where it was, and that's the way I had been spending my whole life. it really was at that stage, because I looked at all of you, and you know, we talked about, I said before, that there would be no blackouts for me that night. When I arrived here, I had never had a blackout. I would look you straight in the eye and tell you I had never had one and it just uh, passed out? Sure, I used to pass out a lot, but I never had a blackout. Maybe you people were sick enough, I wasn't. And I finally sat one night talking to, I was sitting alongside my sponsor in a meeting, and and it got to be one of these, can you top this kind of meetings? And I ended up talking about one time while I was in, in San Antonio, and we used to get off into Mexico a lot. And when I get into Mexico, somehow or another, I used to get into things. And uh, that particular day, someone had challenged me to chug a lug this bottle of cheap Mexican brandy, which which I did, and somehow or another, the rest of the day disappeared. And I got into things that day. The thing I happened to get into that day was, the only way I know how to describe it, was nude wild cow riding. And it, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Somehow or another, I lost my clothes and I ended up on this cow. I have absolutely no memory of that to this day. The only thing I can tell you is about a week later in the day room in those barracks, all these pictures went up. All my friends had cameras with them that day, and it, uh, happily those are long gone. I haven't seen one of them in a long, long time. And you know, my sponsor just kind of looked at me and said, "If you passed out, how the devil did you get up on the cow?" You know, and, and I tried to figure it out. I will try and analyze those things. I still do that sometimes today. But that is is where it's continued on. And and the third step seemed to come once I got through the first two. The third step seemed to come pretty easy for me. Once I saw how much insanity there was in my life and what had really been going on and how unmanageable I really was, the decision to turn my will in my life, I wasn't sure where and what I was turning it over to, but... At that point, I was looking purely at higher powers, and and it had to be something more than me that could take care of it, because I had done a terrible, terrible job of it. And I got through that reasonably easy, but I was in absolutely no rush to go do a four-step. I was one of the foot-draggers on a four-step, and I stretched it out for quite a while. But I was feeling pretty good, so I didn't panic about it at all. And then my job shifted again, and the next thing I knew, I was leaving that area, leaving Florida. I was headed for St. Louis. That was where our major customer was. We are into a major, major competition. I had been asked, I was just told, basically we'd lost the technical communication with the customer, go fix it. And here I was just two and a half years sober. I hadn't done the fourth step and I all of a sudden looked and said, my God, I'm leaving. That means I'm gonna have to go break in a new sponsor. I better go do the fourth and fifth step before I leave here. That was the way this mind worked. And we did that, and we got through that, and it worked fairly well. I can still remember going in and doing my fifth step, as I said, this was in Connecticut. My sponsor was very much a Giants fan, and it was football season. And I remember walking into his house, I figured I'd be through that that fifth step in an hour or so. And I walked into his house, and uh, the Giants games used to start at 12.30 in the afternoon, and the game had just started. And all I know, when I left his house, it was very, very dark outside. And we had spent a long, long time. And I'd begun to understand a few things that that I didn't understand. He launched me right into my sixth step. But I was to find out that my sixth step wasn't about to begin until I made the move. I started setting myself up for it because I was back into my primary skill again. I was off into another sick relationship. I can still remember meeting this young lady. I met her in the program and got very much attracted to her that's the first warning sign if i'm attracted to him run i mean there's there's nothing but trouble there and it's, uh but i was very much attracted then i listened to her speak one evening and as i listened to her story my conclusion was real quick don't ever go near that woman you know and three months later we were involved you know that was the way my mind worked and i went off and did one of those things all of a sudden i'm leaving i invited her to go with me and she came and we got off to that new city, and then uh, we started doing our thing. And that's when I found out how really skilled I was at relationships. We lasted three weeks. And there was an explosion, and she was gone. And, uh, and I pulled her back in several times, again and again. And the best we ever did was three weeks. And, uh, but funny things started to happen. That happened very quickly. She was gone, and I was a mess. I was an absolute mess. And I had picked up a new sponsor at that time. And he took one look at me and he said, you need some help, and you need it bad. And you're going to go see this gentleman. He's a therapist, and you won't like him, but you are going to work with him. And that gentleman also was 27 years sober at the time I first stepped into his office. And uh, his therapy sessions used to last two hours. He didn't do one-hour sessions. And I know when I came out of his office, my knees would be buckled. And it's, uh, but that lasted uh, a little over two years with him, and we did some real, real heavy work. And that really was where my sixth step started going. That, And then the gentleman who had gotten me to him left. He moved away, and I picked up another sponsor, and that man just locked onto me. turned out to be a real sad part in life, but he knew exactly what I needed. He spent over two years with me, and all we worked on was whatever happens, don't react. And that was where all my trouble had come all the time. I would react to whatever went on around me. never saw that, uh, you know... Somebody else caused me to do that. But that's where I really started getting into the character defects in my life the two of them the therapist on one side and him on the other I was convinced they were talking to each other every night but they didn't even they actually disliked each other they never got along but uh, between the two of them they worked me up one side and down the other so my sixth step was a real heavy start and a real long one I begun and I do understand today that that is probably the most difficult step there is no question in my mind for me it was that way and I did get finally get willing and move on into that seventh step. The eighth step was, was also real interesting, too, because uh, I didn't have any problem getting willing to do that and putting those people's names down on the list because I didn't know where a whole bunch of them were. I can't tell you how many of them started appearing in my life once those <laughs> names went down on the list. They would come out of nowhere and they would be there. And I moved on into that and into the ninth step. And the ninth step went fairly smoothly for me. But I'm going to come back to a little bit of that after because there's another piece of that that didn't go smoothly. But most of it went very, very well for me in spite of the people that would just keep coming back in. To me, as I got into the tenth step, the most important promises of this program are in the tenth step. Everybody keeps focusing on the ninth step promises. The ones I focus on is where it starts talking in the book, that we have stopped fighting anything for anyone, even alcohol, and that the problem has been removed for us. We haven't sworn off. It's just been taken care of for us. And that is what happened for me as I came through this program. It was taken away for me. And as I got into all these other crazy things that were going on in my life, namely sick relationships and a few things like that, those began to get resolved for me. I had to pay attention, and I had to be willing to do the things that I had to do. But in each one of those, it came back to the, my job was real, real simple. It's the end of that piece of the 10th step to where it says, this is the great fact for us so long as we remain in fit spiritual condition. That was the only part of the job I had, was my spiritual condition. The other stuff gets done for me, and my life has continued to work that way is I finally started to walk away from all these things. And the amazing thing that would happen, it was that woman, we would break it up, and she'd be gone after three weeks. And then a few weeks later, she'd call me, then I'd call her, and next thing you know, we were piecing this thing back together again, and it'd explode again. And then she finally called one time, she called me in the office in St. Louis. And I can still remember a word. She said, if you're not too angry at me, why don't you give me a call at home this evening? And I found out the only thing I had to do was not pick up the phone. It was that simple. That's all I had to do. I also met another woman at that time, as that kind of came to an end. And I came to a conclusion as to how we kind of operate, you know, especially the kind of people we hook up with. And the conclusion that I came to is we can only hook up with people at our own level. That's the only place we can connect. I used to keep thinking about, you know, why can't I attract some of these healthy people? How come I always get these other kinds of Because that's who I am. It was that real simple. And so the the process became very easy for me. I ended up, I looked at it and I said I had three choices. I could either go back to the way I was, and I have wanted no part of that. I could go off in a corner and work on myself and get other people to work on me until I was healthy enough to attract healthy people. And I very quickly concluded they'd be nailing the cover on my box by the time I reached that point. And the third option I found was to hook up with someone at my level, which was the only thing I could do, what they owned, who and what they were, and were willing to work at getting better. And I found that. And uh, 1997, she and I got, no, 1998, she and I got married. Excuse me. And she still, we're doing very, very well today. Same thing happened, though. I had done two and a half years. She had done five years of therapy. She and I ended up doing two years together as a couple before we began to piece these things through. Doing the work and doing the legwork is a whole lot of stuff I, I found out. But it absolutely works so long as I'm willing to do the, the things that are there. And as I moved on into the 11th step also, I mean, that that's just a very close part of everything today. That it, it, uh, Every day has to start out for me with the prayer and meditation. I dare not do anything else. There's an occasion when I get up late or something happens and I start running. But somewhere along the line, I'll haul myself up short and start that day over. Never used to know I could do things like that. The, uh, the 12th step, I mean, having had a spiritual awakening is the result of these steps. is just incredible. It has happened. It's continued to grow for me. And to carry the message has become very, very important. We found several ways to do that. I've been relatively active in service. I'm sitting as the DCM right now in in District 20. And uh, it's stayed active there for a long time. I've done the same job back in Missouri while I was there and doing it again. The other thing that uh, my wife and I also do all the time right now, and I I think it all started back when Angry John used to haul me off to to the mission in Bridgeport. But we make sure that if we're in town on Friday night, you'll find us at a meeting at the Salvation Army. That's where we are every Friday. And there's, there's just so much to go there. And those people have so little when you come in. Whatever whatever can be done, it works. And boy, does it help keep me sober. And it's a real reminder of what the yets are for me out there. And it, it, it works just extremely well. And again, as, as, as I've talked, you know, as I said I don't know how this thing works. I don't know the right messages to carry. I just know that they need to be carried. And I was taught very, very early on, if you want to know what God's will is for you, just do what's in front of you. And that has become the important thing to me. And that's always what had me in trouble. I was all off trying to figure out all of the other things around me. All the things were really none of my business. And if I'll just focus on what's right here in front of me, I end up doing what I need to do. That same therapist that i had in st louis he he taught me very hard how much this whole business of carrying the message is none of my business the fact that was pounded into me that there is nothing i can do that'll get another person sober there's nothing i can do that'll get another person drunk i just go do my part of this thing and the rest of it's in in the hands of the god of my understanding what he told me you know basically was he sat in a meeting one day and told the story of his early sobriety. You know, he's gone now, and he told this story, and I absolutely love it, and I love to repeat it. But he was very early sobriety, which was in Baltimore for him. And he said he got one of those late-night phone calls. Somebody was in trouble. Some wet drunks were in trouble. He said he made two mistakes. first one, he went by himself. And the second one, being by himself, late at night, driving cross town, he had to go clear to the other side of Baltimore. He got very, very grandiose. He was on his way out to save the world. And when he pulled up in front of the address he had, what he found was a dilapidated garage. It wasn't even a house. And he finally got out of the car, walked over and peeked in, and inside that garage was a couch and a hammock with a comatose drunk in each one of them. They were passed out cold. And his reaction was, my God, you get me out of bed in the middle of the night to come all the way over here. You're going to hear whether I, what I've got to say, whether you can hear it or not. And he went through that door and started screaming at two passed out drunks. Did that for 20 minutes. Turned around to where there was a bridge table sitting on there. Took a where and when he had laid it on that table and left. Two years later, he sat in a meeting like this and listened to a woman tell her story. And she talked about the evening that she got hooked up with two nuts in this one bar where she was drinking. And they lived in a garage. And I got down to my place or yours, and she ended up going home to their garage with them. She got terrified. She hid behind the couch, hoping they would pass out. They finally did. She was about to crawl out of there and leave, and she said this maniac came (laughs) through the door. Started, started screaming and yelling and she had crawled back behind that co- couch terrified and waited for him to leave he finally left she crawled out from behind that couch found the where and when he left on the table found a meeting had her last drink you know, that's how much I know of what I should be doing about carrying the message I don't know how these, these things really really work but, you know, with stories, I do want to back up to another one. I want to back up to the ninth step. I told you I'd come back to that. I know you've all been waited very patiently because it's the favorite step of everyone here. But my, my ninth step with my mother was the most difficult one I had. And it, there had been a lot of difficulties. I told you my father died from this illness. He died in 1965. This was in the early 90s that I was finally trying to work a ninth step with her. Right, right about 1990. And I had tried many, many times to go through that with her and failed miserably so many times. That my father died in 1965, so today he's a canonized saint. I think we all know how that works. There's no way she can justify what she went through, so he has become this wonderful man that she lived with for all those years. And as I would start trying to go through that ninth step with her, she would sit there and start talking about this wonderful man. And then something would fly out of my mouth, something real smooth, like, are we talking about the same son of a bitch I grew up with? And, and you know how far I got on the nine step at that, at that stage. It was over. It was finished. And I was back in Connecticut at, at one point, which is where she lives. And I had an evening meeting canceled, and I sat there and I said, well, one, one more try. I'm going to take another shot at this thing. And I'm going to go do it exactly by the book. My stuff and my stuff only. And I went in, and I did that, and guess what? It worked. We got through that. But there were some other things that began to happen. She started talking about my father again. Rather than my lousy reactions, I finally turned around and I looked at her. I said, you know, I wished I had my big book with me. I'd like to read the introduction to the third step to you. I said, because it describes him perfectly. He was just another alcoholic like the rest of us. And she looked at me, and she said, I've got one of those. And I looked at her, and I said, you've got a big book? And she said, yeah. And I said, where'd you get that? And her comment was, your uncle was selling them to support the order. Right. My uncle never sold a big book in his life, but that was the way she chose to remember it. And I had to learn a whole lot that evening. I knew an uncle of mine had found this program early on, my father's brother. I did not know exactly when. I was about to find out. Forgive me a little bit, because I still get worked up over this whole affair. And I looked at her and I said, where is it? And she pointed to it. She's got an old roll-top desk with a big bookcase on the top, and she pointed to that. And I started across the floor, and I just looked back at her, and I said, "Uh, is it red? And she said, I think so. And a few seconds later, I was standing with a first edition, first printing in my hands of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I stood there and I opened that book. And on the inside cover, there were two things written in there. One was a date, which was July 19, 1939. No, excuse me, July seventeenth. I keep confusing it back to my July 9, 1939. The thing that was written directly under that was my name in that book. I still... I was six years old. There were some strange things that used to go on when I was growing up. I used to get dumped a lot. You know, uh, they'd go off for a few weeks somewhere. At that particular time, they were going off for a year, which lasted six months, and I got out of hand. They came and got me. I was with him, with that uncle. And I don't know what he saw that he chose to put my name in that book. But it sat there and waited 50 years for me to come get it. I don't... I don't believe he had any idea the impact it would have. I can tell you it was absolutely enormous. I came to find out that uh, he had not found, I thought he found it maybe somewhere around 38, 39, this program, He's come to find out that uh, Bill Wilson 12-stepped him in 1936. And uh, Hank P was the first one in New York, Bill R was the second. And uh, he was to go on to become the first alcoholic trustee of this program. He did get drunk again, if you're familiar with how AA comes of age and with the history on this. And then he did get sober again, and he died that way in, in 1961. But uh, So again, I just go do whatever's laid in front of me, and I leave what's going to happen with that in the hands of the God of my understanding. I don't know what will happen with the things I do, and I may never find out, and that's okay. I know if I go do the things that are laid right in front of me, it'll work the way it needs to work. I have no idea where it's going. You know, we we get told that our stories disclose in a general way what we used to be like, what happened, and what we're like now. That's true. What I've also come to find out is they do far, far more than that. My reading, a whole lot of things have expanded a whole lot at this stage. I've run into a book that... Uh, Spirituality of Imperfection. And as I've gotten into that, come to find out they start talking about uh, storytelling. The subtitle of that book is Storytelling in the Path to Wholeness. And it's storytelling is an ancient, ancient spiritual practice. It goes way, way back, thousands of years, and somehow was lost. The conclusion they come to in that book, I love, that who would have ever dreamed that that spiritual practice would have been brought back to this modern world by a room full of drunks. But here we are with the storytelling. And that is the way we reach each other. I don't understand what has happened to me. I know there's been a huge change. I know there's been a spiritual experience that's changed me to where I don't have to pick up a drink. It's changed me to where my life has gotten better beyond my wildest dreams. I know that storytelling really, really works. I listen to some of the things that go on. I've also gotten very much into to Anthony DeMello at this stage. And I don't need to understand, but the way he approaches it, he's now labeled as one of the spiritual masters of the 20th century. And he talks about a thing called one-minute wisdom. And he sits there and he talks about a master and, and their disciples. And he, he said, the disciples looking at him and saying, is there really such a thing as one-minute wisdom? And he turns and says, it's actually 59 seconds too long. And the question is, why do we have to go through all these spiritual practices then? Or in our case, why do we have to go to all these meetings and deal with all these sponsors and do all these things we need to do if it is done in a flash? He said, look at the moon. How long does it take to see it? And they said, but then why all these things? And he said, it's very simple. Seeing is done in a flash, but it may take a lifetime to open our eyes. And that's what I find out goes on in these rooms as I continue to open my eyes. And you've invited me here this evening to participate in what becomes an ancient spiritual practice. Whether it reaches any of you, none of my business. I know it's kept me sober again today. And the privilege of participating in something like this, the only words that can suffice to all of you is thank you.